Welcome back to the Better Birth Podcast, where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth, and postpartum to help you feel confident and empowered on your new parenting journey. Better Birth is presented by Anta Health, the first woman-owned and affordable cord blood bank for preserving stem cells from cord blood, cord tissue, and the placenta for future cell-based treatments. Catherine Cross founded Anja Health in memory of her younger brother, Andrew, who was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and wasn't able to find a stem cell match when he needed them most. Today, she's on a mission to help every family access their most personal source of life-saving stem cells. I'm your co-host, Amelia Protova, a certified doula and head of community at Anja, and you should know about the Anja community. Join us at community.anjahealth.com to connect with other parents just like you, learn from perinatal experts, and get exclusive access to perks from the best perinatal brands. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. We're so excited that you've taken some time out of the middle of your day to join us for this very important conversation about how to choose the right provider for you as you navigate your prenatal and postpartum healthcare. And I'm so excited to be joined today by two incredible midwives, Katrina and Jessica. I'm going to go ahead and let you guys share an introduction of yourself and your work that you do with our audience. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, my name is Katrina George. I'm a certified nurse midwife um, and Asheville Clinical Director at Quilted Health. Um, In my role, I'm involved with program management and community engagement. Um, I also have my doctorate in nursing practice and I'm an adjunct professor at Frontier Nursing University teaching the next generation of midwives. Um, And I'm also an international board certified lactation consultant. Um, I'm in great company. Um, I'm Jessica Diggs. I'm a licensed midwife based in Los Angeles, and I have a private midwifery practice that specializes in home births and holistic gynecology. Um, Beyond that, I'm a doula trainer, and I'm the co-founder of Center, which is a doula community, so helping doulas create thriving businesses so that they can continue to serve the families that, you know, know and love doulas. And then I consult and write a lot of reproductive health curricula for various companies and brands. Beautiful. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into our conversation. I'm sure we'll have so much to share. Um, It's going to be really helpful. But I thought it'd be a great place to just set the foundation for what is the midwifery model of care? How does that differ from an obstetrical model of care? And how do you interact with your patients as midwives? That's such a good question. Um, So Dr. Nicole Rankin, I hate to like jump straight into talking about a physician, but I think the way she worded this resonated with me. So she said that midwives are not the solution to the maternal health crisis, but the Mm -hmm. midwife model of care is. And I think that's such an important call out because when we think about, you know, traditionally midwives are the experts in normal physiologic birth and obstetricians are the experts, you know, more in high risk pregnancies. And we also know, like, if you were to look at European models, you know, the midwives are delivering the vast majority of babies because the vast majority of people are normal and healthy, right? And so I think that one of the big differences is just that midwives believe that birth is a normal process that when it's left undisturbed, it will will usually progress Mm -hmm. beautifully. Um, And like physicians, we're also trained in early recognition that when the process is deviated from normal, um, that we may need intervention. And so the difference to me is that the midwifery model is rooted in empowering birthing families. um, And that Mm -hmm. comes in the form of many different things like motivational interviewing and shared decision-making and 
it's focused mm-hmm. on building trust and community and creating this mm-hmm. um, like a circle of safety. So mm-hmm. I do think that any healthcare provider, I do want to be clear, like both midwives and the phys- and physicians can provide a midwifery model of care. Um, yes. It's just that obstetricians tend to see higher volume patients, take care of higher and more complex situations um, during pregnancy and the postpartum. And so I think all of us are important to, you know, very yeah. important members of the healthcare team, but that's just a difference that I would call out brief interruption for our podcast listeners, and then we'll get right back to it. If you're currently pregnant, then this is important for you to know. So when I was three and my brother was one, he was in a near drowning accident that gave him cerebral palsy. One treatment for cerebral palsy is giving children stem cells from their own umbilical cord. The umbilical cord and placenta are both super rich with stem cells that can be used to replace and repair damaged cells. And when they come from the baby, they're a perfect match for that baby. However, my family didn't save stem cells for my brother and we couldn't find a match when the time came. It's pretty difficult to find a cord blood stem cell match if you're a person of color or mixed race. So the best solution to this problem is to save stem cells right at birth. You can do this with AngiHealth. We have a kit that you can bring with you to birth and it contains all of the tools that your provider needs to collect your umbilical cord and placenta. After birth, you can place a pickup in our parent portal and we'll come and pick it up from anywhere in the United States and bring it to our lab in New Jersey where it will be frozen in the same way that you can freeze eggs or sperm. Then your family will always have access to stem cells for future disease treatment. Stem cells have been used to treat type 1 diabetes, different types of cancers, heart disease, liver disease, multiple sclerosis, and more. Get your kit today with Anja Health by going to anjahealth.com. That's A-N-J-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. You can always text or call us with questions as well at 310-620-1663. And yes, it is always a real person. And now back to the episode. Yeah, I love that so much. I too agree and echo all of that. I've been leaning into um, similar thought processes, Dr. Nicole Rankin, and like midwifery is more and not so much that midwives need to be bedside in all spaces, but midwives need to be present in all reproductive health spaces from admin to, you know, making protocols to um, not just actual birth, but laws, menopause, all aspects. The midwife model allows um, any care provider to view the person as a whole person and incorporating their day-to-day lives, their stress management, their body work, trauma, all the things as they provide care. And that's kind of what I do as a midwife. And I think most people who come into this work are already doing that in their day-to-day lives. They just get a job title that matches, but we're typically seeing a full person and acknowledging pregnancy and birth and the postpartum to be um, one aspect and one extension of this person. And how can we consider all of them as we talk through this particular season of life, um, midwives are good at recognizing normal physiological birth, but that also makes us good at recognizing any abnormalities and complications and acting quickly. Um, we're skilled providers. So the scope that we provide clinically is very similar to obstetrician minus surgery. Many midwives get additional training to do a lot of the same things from abortion, um, insemination, birth, a lot of medical management in the hospital setting. We just typically don't do surgery. We typically span across a couple other birth settings outside of the hospital. So home birth, birth center, and then um, hospital as well. 
I love that so much. Yes. And I think that one thing that we can add in here that I think is really relevant to this conversation as we jump into the next bit about what families should know about birth, specifically in the U.S. versus other countries, is that 80% of births are considered low risk. And so when we provide congruent low risk care to those that high percentage of births that are low risk, there's an incredibly de- decreased risk of having an unnecessary cesarean, which is a severe abdominal surgery, and just kind of like intervening early or intervening prematurely when everything is going fine. Sometimes we just need time. So with that kind of like premise in mind, what do we wish that every family knew about birth going into the U.S.? I know the U.S. is one of those spaces where we don't talk about sex education, birth education, anything like that through the school years. And so everyone's kind of preconceived notions or first introduction to birth can look very, very different. So in the perfect world, what do you wish every family knew about birth? So my first thought is, do I want to depress families? With <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll do a positive spin on it. Uh, ultimately, I would say um, you are the expert in matters pertaining to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you are in charge of your labor or the birth room, not the provider. And it is the job of everyone who is a part of your care team to support your journey. Yeah. Um, I want you to feel empowered and rooted in your ability to advocate for yourself and your family. Um, and I know this may feel like an oversimplification, um, but I think it's imperative that the pendulum of power swings yes. in a different direction. And that we change the current paradigm. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I think pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum period is an intimate, it's a delicate and a tr- and transformative mm-hmm. time in people's lives. Um, and, in, and we as providers cannot always change your birth outcome, right? I don't even know that that's really our responsibility. It's more so to yeah. give you the tools and the resources to have so that you can feel empowered, respected, and maintain your dignity every step of the way. So I would say every family, and when I say every family, I mean rich, poor, black, white, sick, queer, or battling addiction, whatever, deserves that. So that would be my, like, what I would say. Yeah, um, I also don't, I, I 100% agree. And I don't think it's an oversimplification. I, when you said that, I envision Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy, like just the ant, the little by little makes a world of a difference. And if we break down social change in that way, we actually are less overwhelmed by it. So I agree. I definitely think the power shift starts with us as individuals and taking back that power. And it's the one thing we can't actually do. Challenging the system is hard and I'm like, start with you. But my thing I would say is I tend to say this a lot to clients moving through the hospital system. I used to be a doula for a long time before I was a midwife and it can be much like an assembly line. It's just, it's going, going, going. There's some protocol here, a check here, quality control and go. And in navigating birth in the United States, I think it's very important that you hit the emergency pause button on that, that assembly line, make it stop make people pause and check in with you as an individual versus just the entire population of, I keep seeing um, 
a yogurt for some reason on my assembly line, but like something like the little tops on yogurt. Anyways, um, make it pause and actually check in with you and see like, do I want to keep going down this path? Do I want to pause and veer this way? Is there something I need to ask for specifically for myself? Many things can be easily granted to you in that system. Um, that's not confrontational. It's just actually people are just moving through their day-to-day lives in that setting that they forget to actually be like, oh yeah, I can get you some juice if you never ask. And so I always tell people when you're moving through navigating giving birth in this country, which 98% of people are going to move through the hospital setting, know that you can hit, you can press pause and actually vocalize what you want. And oftentimes it's well received. Not always, you're still giving birth in the United States, but a lot of the times it's, it's a simple ask that you just don't realize you have. Yeah. I think remembering as a patient going into birth that these physicians and care providers may have been through many different scenarios in one single day, right? They're going room to room to room and it's very fast paced and it's easy for them to disconnect with their own body the way that it's similar for us to disconnect when we get into those like very clinical spaces. And so just helping them pause and remember for this family, for this birth, this is monumental and this is not just a system. And so it's breaking down those like hierarchies to be a circle of support rather than a pyramid. So when families are going in to deciding on which healthcare provider they want to use. You know, they've got that positive pregnancy test. They're sitting down and they're researching what strategies can they use to find a maternity healthcare provider that's going to best fit their family's unique circumstances and preferences. Um, I think we can hit kind of four low risk and high risk as well, um, even if they're looking for obstetric care for like high risk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I might get very specific with what you think you want. Um, or if you have no idea where to start, I usually, my strategy is like, think of a friend or person in your community who shares similar values on life and parenting that you envision you'll have. You may not know if it's your first time, but you're like, I kind of like what they're doing over there. Then ask them for their recommendations to start there. My main strategy is like you may just not know and moving through this process from a place of you are hiring someone. That's a little bit more of a tangible exchange for myself as a home birth midwife, where it feels a little bit more nuanced when you are using insurance and going to your hospital and, you know, you're just kind of get lumped into an OB and they start doing stuff already. But know that you can put a pause on that in the earlier the earlier portion of the pregnancy and interview people and actually take into consideration how does this person make me feel if you don't already have kind of a list how do you want to feel with a provider or specific um depiction of your ideal provider um so if you do have that you're like I know I want a black person I know I want a woman I know I want this person in this area who shops at Whole Foods or respects me, whatever it is, get as specific as possible because those are going to be important to you. You you are still you in this entire experience. But if you're like, I don't know, then I would just say pick a couple people, maybe a recommendation, maybe a Google search, maybe just insurance and interview them. Don't feel like you're stuck there um, as you're kind of moving through the early portions of your pregnancy feel free to switch. I get people very late in the process because sometimes it takes a couple of visits and realize, actually, obstetrical care is not for me. Actually, I would like something different. And then that can spark some curiosity and some research. And that's okay too. Yeah. 
to piggyback off of that, I think that was very well said. Um, you know, picking a provider is not as easy as like a marketing search, right? It's not like you can just Google and be like, oh, who's got the best reviews and the great, you know, they list all of their, what comes as a part of their package and I want that. So I agree. There's tons of times where we have people who are on our schedule where it's an OB consult. And that is for exactly the reason that, you know, that Jessica explained. People just want and have an opportunity to make sure that you're a great fit. And I think that's appropriate. You are going to have a better birthing experience if you feel safe. And part of that safety doesn't just come with setting choice. It's a matter of who is best aligned with your values, your preferences, your belief systems. It could be identity. It could be whatever you assign yourself to. So do invest that time and energy. And I agree. I think that can sometimes that's in the third trimester where that feels like you have a finite perspective around that. Sometimes it takes a couple of visits with someone you're like, no, this isn't working. I actually now know what I need and what I'm looking for. So it's okay to pivot. Um, so yeah, just listen to that need. And I also want to add that I think the community pretty much can ha- give you a really good idea of mm-hmm. where are the best places, who are the right people through their own experiences. Doulas are very well rooted and integrated within the community and tend to be the best person to sit there and have that conversation with and say, this is what I'm looking for. They'll say, oh, I got the right person. These are a couple of people that meet your criteria. So that would be my advice. Yeah. I joke and say doulas are the mafia. They make or break (laughs) businesses all the time. I was like, when they love you, they love you. When they don't, you know about it. Um, Yeah. Well, I think like doulas are trained to see patterns of behavior as well. Like there's been several times where you, as a doula, you have care with a physician and you're sharing a client, right? And you just start to see patterns of behavior and just kind of dismissiveness and things. And so you're just very aware of what's happening in the birth community. And doulas are very integrated a lot of times with other people in the doula community. So they hear things through the grapevine. And so they can be a great resource. I used to get emails from people who were looking for a physician or a midwife who would reach out to me just without even being a client. And I was always happy to provide resources and information. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of doulas would echo that as well. So once they yeah. find, once you find that physician or that midwife that you're very happy with, you're really like wanting to move forward in that relationship what recommendations would you have on steps that people can take to build a collaborative relationship with their provider rather than a hierarchical relationship? So um, I think, so I am of the belief that it is not the responsibility of the birthing person or the family to have to think through those steps. Um, And I say that because um, I think that responsibility is on us as a provider to earn Mm -hmm. and maintain the trust of clients, especially when we're talking about BIPOC, queer, and underrepresented families. Like when the power traditionally lies with us as a provider, I think it's our, our responsibility to give it back to our clients and to create this culture of like collegiality. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah, I love that. I probably wouldn't have said it though, but I was thinking it's like, I was like, (laughs) You said it so beautifully. Yeah, I, I would say I tend to do that organically. I'm like always asking, always reassuring, like, this is your birth, this is your experience. I'm just here to be a resource. Um, And but you're, you know, the expert in your body, I would say if they're finding it challenging to have that uh, offered to them in a space with another provider, then I would probably 
I would just ask. I would probably straight out ask, like, how, what do you love? How the best do we work together? So they understand, like, oh, th- this, is a, this is a relationship. Like, I'm going to be heavily involved in my care. I'm coming with questions. I'm coming with this. Um, what is the best way in which we are working together? How do you want questions? What's the best way to contact you? You know, that type of thing. I would probably just straight out ask. I typically offer that pretty organically with my clients. But if I was in a space where I wasn't getting that, then I was like, how do we work together? And I'll continue to use like words like, how do we collaborate? How do we work together? And then what ways in which I can get my needs met by you? I love that, Jessica, because I think you raise a great point by saying this is that although we all agree that in a perfect world, (laughs) the provider would create this environment where the, you know, where the client didn't feel the need to have to like try to prompt and nourish this sort of relationship in that way. I do think it's healthy to like have these trigger words that the client could use that say, hey, like we're in this together. How do we work together? Mm -hmm. How do Mm -hmm. we get to make decisions, you know? in a way that is collaborative, but then also respects the fact that I'm the person who does remain in the driver's seat. Yeah, I think that's important to have those like, how do I navigate it when it's not this perfect situation? Absolutely. The language that we use matters, right? So the way that, I mean, people can tell immediately if their provider's respecting them and listening to them. Like there's there's social cues that you can observe if you feel like you're being dismissed Mm -hmm. consistently. I think reiterating if at any point during your care, you feel that you're being dismissed, talked over, ignored, you can ask for a new provider or seek a new provider. Yes. Yeah. With that in mind, let's talk a little bit about more community-based care or low-income care and how people can navigate the healthcare system in those spaces. Um, because sometimes mm-hmm. it's not quite as easy. I had a really important conversation with a non-binary parent recently who shared that in their area, the only option for them on Medicare was for them to see one particular midwife who continuously misgendered them. And the only other option was mm-hmm. obstetrical care in a local hospital. And so it was this horrible balance of like the lesser of two evils, but neither was good mm-hmm. quality care. What recommendations mm-hmm. do you have? I know a lot of us can work in kind of bubbles in certain areas and kind of forget that that exists in like more rural communities across the U.S. Yeah. I think first we have to ask ourselves, like, how do we define the best care? Like, what do what do we identify as like the pillars or the hallmarks of good care? And I think one aspect that I could say to that would be alignment. So it goes back to what I said previously, like talking to doulas, family, friends about providers in the area who may be likely suited to your preferences, your values, your goals, just where you are as a person and your identity as a collective. And I also think this brings up, and I might go a little far on this because I think there's a lot of thoughts I have around this, but even when we think about who's present in your birth, right? It's not just about your relationship with providers. It's about who's present on your big day. And you need to make sure that the people who are there with you are aligned and are able to advocate for you, right? Um, Because if your mom, for example, is very anxious and is like, I want you to deliver in a hospital, and right, and she is a client of yours, Jessica. How is that patient mm-hmm. going to then navigate being in an out of hospital setting with someone who every second and every step of the way is hyper, you know, like hyper responsive? And so it's about mm-hmm. having the birth team, including everyone there, aligned with your values. 
Um, the other thing that comes to mind is like advocacy. That kind of is a piggyback to me off of alignment. Um, so you do want to hire someone like when we using doulas as an example, who has a good relationship with the team that you're choosing to attend your birth, right? You want someone who can advocate for you, but you also don't want it to feel like it's contentious either. So that is also important in my mind. Um, and so, because again, you want to be able to relax, to surrender and to feel safe during such an important time. Affordability, right? You need to talk to your insurance and the practice manager and find out, like anticipate your costs and make sure that that is informing a decision. Because if, if it's not something that you can afford, then that may come back later and you want to make sure that you're comfortable with your decision. And I would say, uh, like navigating information, you know, making sure that you have, you're informed around your decision. So you have trusted resources, whether that's a provider, whether that's balanced blogs, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just having access to good information. And then I think the last part would be just trusting your instincts. Yeah, I think all of those things are so important and I can't really add much to that, but specifically to this person in this area, I would go outside your area. Like a, just a tangible like potential solution is you moving through some of those steps that Katrina mentioned, like aligning uh, advocacy is like, can't, is it worth having this conversation with this midwife? A very straightforward, maybe email, maybe even behind, like where you're not actively triggered and having to explain yourself in that moment, but like sending an email of like, you've misgendered me, here's uh, some resources, blah, blah, blah. It's unfortunate you have to do that work, but when you don't have any other options, the option may be to further advocate for yourself. And the same with hospital settings, like for as a doula, I would do the work for them. Just one, utilizing my privilege of being cis heteronormative woman. If I had a client who was non-binary or if I had parents who were queer, I would just say, this is so-and-so and this is her wife. <laughs> just so, like, it was very out there. Like, do not call her her sister. Do not, you know, trying to avoid some, some potential microaggressions that they would have to endure. And if you could, either having someone in your community send that message to your midwife for you on your behalf or be present at a visit and correct so you don't have to. But trying to find some ways in which you can, you know, make sure you're advocating for yourself or at least have someone else to do it in that setting. Or you're going to have to do it in a hospital as well, unfortunately, this is we're not living in a post-insertism community. Um, and so I think that figuring out what works best for you in terms of advocating for yourself and um, and when you're limited with resources, doing that and then utilizing virtual doula communities and spaces. There's a lot of online things like COVID was a shit show for reproductive health. But it did really birth some innovative virtual and online platforms that are really doing a lot of work to support the mass community. So I think reaching out beyond your small circle and going and going outside of that for your immediate um, your individual support can be really helpful that can kind of fill in the gaps to what you might be, you know, just limited to whether it's finances or actual just location if you're in a rural place. Or times are just hard, um, finding some online community to kind of fill in the gaps of care can be really helpful. I love that. 
Let's lean a little bit more into that self-advocacy piece. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's talk about resources that you recommend personally for folks so they can become informed and empowered for their own self-advocacy in their maternity care. Yeah, I'd say my two these days, um, because I get a lot of folks, particularly Black people trying to find a Black provider, um, some actually wanting a home birth and some not, but they're like, I just saw you were Black midwife. And so I get a lot of inquiries around that. Um, I love the piece that Erica Chitty and um, Dr. Erica I uh, can't think of her last name right now, um, did for the New York Times to protect Black birth, like gave like Black people a list of questions to move through with the provider just to make sure they're actually practicing or being aware of anti-racist approaches to medical, to maternity care, or they actually just checked. Um, and so I think that's one piece that I tend to go to a lot for people. And it's an easy printout. You can take it with you. I usually tell people start with a couple questions, not all like 15 at once. It's overwhelming, but like little by little, um, doing some reflecting and then some questioning of your provider. And then one that I've always used is like for in the moment advocacy, pieces I always tell people if people are talking to you it's not an emergency you have time for questions if someone is that's just not what an emergency looks like in a reproductive setting so if anyone's ever talking to you you can always ask for some time ask your questions and then using your brain which is like one of those um, acronyms that just got out there and it's lovely but pausing and if you're not sure of what's being recommended and you need more information to actually make an informed and empowered decision asking them what are the benefits what are my risks what are my alternatives checking in with yourself around your intuition and what if I do nothing or wait and that's an easy one to kind of like one filter out, like, did I actually get those things when they shared this intervention, this offer, this procedure? And then if I didn't, where do I need to fill in the gaps? Yeah, I think um, if I think of like specific resources that help, in my opinion, um, one of the things that I love is evidence-based birth. And the reason I point them out is because, you know, they publish accurate, accessible, digestible and inclusive research mm-hmm. on topics that are related to birth. And so um, the information is balanced, it's rooted in fact, and there's some um, elements to me that are important that distinguish, excuse me, the way that we traditionally talk about risk in the medical model is we say things like you have a three times higher chance of stillbirth or you know five times higher chance of da 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 But what does that mean, right? Because mm-hmm. sometimes- Statistics can be used in a form of coercion um, because at face value, when you hear I've got a three times higher risk of something, that's very scary. But when you find out that the absolute risk of that thing is less than 1%, you're like, oh, I would, I might think differently. And it doesn't mean that 1% for someone is enough for it to Mm -hmm. to change. And 1% is not for other people. And so I, in my opinion, I think, you know, being able to have access to information in its entirety and not in a balanced way um, and a digestible way is a key element of being informed and empowered in your own self-advocacy. So that's the only other thing I would add to what Jessica said. Yeah, I would say my only last thing is also because 
self-advocacy does not come easy to others. I'm learning this as a human. Um, I'm not a person who's like shy about getting in a tiff with someone at all. So I have a harder time understanding. And so I'm like wanting to be empathetic for those who are just going to, for whatever reason, default to um, the higher power in the room, which should be themselves, but they don't, may not internalize that. Um, and so for that person who may be more of a people pleaser, coming off a traumatic experience, triggered by authority, whatever the case may be, um, having someone else to speak up for you can be really helpful or writing it down and sending it. I'm all about being passive aggressive in these states where I'm just like, send the text, just, just send it. Um, if it gets your point and your message and your need across to this person but you can also have like I joke I have a couple clients who the partners are just sweet and lovely but they, when they need to I'm like you like pit bull energy like the best breeze so loving but when I need you I need you and you know who you go to bat for your family like that may be who you need is to say actually can you remind me to your partner to your support person to your doula to ask these questions or can you be on the phone when I make this phone call I've been on a three-way with so many providers in my life it's insane where it's just like you're giving that encouragement to the to the client to speak up for themselves or you're empowering a partner or support person to remind them to advocate for themselves many people don't get help because they just don't report symptoms they only share it with a loved one and never even share it with the provider and so using your support people to help you to help you advocate for yourself can be really helpful too i think that's fantastic i think that there is just so much to be said for exercising self-advocacy as a muscle. It doesn't always come naturally. And it's uh, sometimes mm-hmm. people with different personality, you know, the way they exhibit their personalities is just very different. Some people do a great job at standing up for themselves and being like, no, but for folks who maybe have a harder time, do you have any tips for them for how they can navigate a system where they're feeling like their preferences aren't being respected or they're feeling ignored because maybe self-advocacy doesn't come as naturally to them. Um, What would you recommend? I love the tip of just like bringing someone else alongside you to that appointment or to that phone call so that you're not doing it alone just to like echo your wishes and your preferences. But anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, I would say restate or reiterate your preference or your concern. Discuss the why behind its value for you and then ask what concerns does the provider have to honoring those particular preferences because that helps you understand the provider's why maybe there's something behind that that is rooted in some value and then calmly request that the provider respects that preference even if it's not the choice that they potentially or personally would make for themselves Um, Mm -hmm. And lastly, I would say if that's ignored, you need to consider another provider or practice because it's important for you to feel respected and heard in your care. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, all of that, all of that, even as a provider, I'm always checking myself. I'm like, did I, you know, making those pauses to make sure that I'm fully acknowledging and being frank, like we're human uh, about like, here's where my concerns lie with this particular thing even though I respect it. And just so we're, you know, on the same page. So I love that. Um, I would also say to this person that they can write it down and ask them to review it. And then, you know, if like, if it's the words, like sometimes it's literally, I can't get it out. Um, so I'm like, write it down. 
gone our like you know a traditional birth plan but I like moving through the exercise of a birth preference or birth plan to actually help you understand where your values lie in this birthing experience whether specific choices and outcomes or how you are what how you want to be made to feel in this experience and why that matters to you writing those things down and presenting them to your provider um even for myself like most of the standard like medical choices that people are choosing skin the skin delay cork limit standard standard of care I still want to hear you say it though I still want to hear you advocate for yourself so I tell my clients at the top of like our time together, this is a container for you to practice self-advocacy and practice parenting. And this is a safe space and a low stake, low risk place to get it wrong. Like, you know, so I tell people to practice just those little things and whatever form works best for you. And some people, it comes just through their portal and some people bring a couple questions. If you are triggered in visits people forget when they're triggered so I always tell people to write down their list and have their timer their phone timer go off during their appointment so it can remind them because if they get flustered they're neurodiverse or they're just triggered by the beeping blood pressure cuff then they will shut down and so having some type of tangible reminder in the moment to get you to look at your phone and then um, ask your couple questions that can also be really helpful for people. Yeah, I really love that, Jessica, the way you, the way you said that too about, you know, I just want to hear you say that. And this is your, you know, practicing your self-advocacy and being a parent like that's, that's absolutely what it's about, because a lot of times providers are intimidated by the word birth plan. And it's not just providers, mm-hmm. it's nurses, it's the whole birth team. People are like, oh, she's got a 10 page birth plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're gonna call a spade a spade. Like that is how people respond. Um, exactly how they respond, right? And the way I see it is like this birth plan is not meant to be a prescription of your birth journey, right? Again, I don't have control over that. You barely, like nobody in this yeah. world has control over that. But what it is is an opportunity for us to know what matters to you. For us to be yes. on the same page, for us as a collective to align on your values, and all of us can do our best to work towards that goal. And I think as we yeah. change the way that that's perceived and digested by the lot, then there's not this like taboo or, ooh, she's, you know, mm-hmm. she's got her plan. Um, so yeah, I really love the, <laughs> the way you put that. I mean, you think yeah, I, I'm like always thinking of that too. I'm like, oh, I love people writing it down I hate how it's perceived at the hospital so I'm always like people ask questions they see it online like should I have one should I not and I'm like you should move through the process how if you need it to actually use it to advocate for yourself because you're gonna have a hard time saying it then yes you want to print a copy if you're like nah I got it I'm gonna gonna ask for what I need in the moment then maybe you don't need to write it down but you might want to have moved through it to just know about all your options um but yeah I'm like write it down, print it, print it out, give it to all the people, because otherwise we don't know. I, I can offer you certain standard of care, but I still don't know you and your values. And I want to. So think of it as a way of introducing yourself to your team, especially when you don't know who you're going to get in a hospital setting. I would just add one more thing to that. If you find value in creating this birth vision or birth plan, then you really need to be with a provider who's not going to be intimidated by that. Yeah. Who's actually going to mm-hmm. encourage you to do that because mm-hmm. that means you're aligned. And if you feel like you have mm-hmm. someone who's like, 
that you have to walk on eggshells with presenting a, you know, that to them, then it doesn't seem like there's an alignment. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say the exact same thing. If, if your provider is acting like this is such a burden to them that you bring a birth plan, that's a massive red flag. Red flag. Yes. Your needs. And I think this is a great place for us to also kind of role play what that can look like for, mm-hmm. you know, so let's talk through a couple of scenarios of what this can look like. Uh, one of my favorite things is I, I know that Jessica mentioned brain as an acronym earlier. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think a doula's favorite tool. I've seen people come in with flashcards with this as a, a way to mm-hmm. remember it in the, in the, in the spirit of writing things down. When a provider comes into the room and says, I want to do X, Y, Z procedure, if this doesn't make a change within X number of hours, we're going to move forward with the C-section. What is the next step? Um, how can people like step into that advocacy? And what's the first questions that they should ask in that moment? I would say my usual initial things, just a one, like have people plant their feet, feel their feet on the ground. It's like in this moment, am I safe? Is, is baby safe? And they're like, yes. Then like take the deep breath and actually internalize that. Right now, you guys are safe. Everyone's okay. Because sometimes we can just get flustered by the mention of something and the thought of an emergency that you start making decisions that you don't necessarily need right now. So I usually ask, like, pause. Am I safe? Is baby safe right now? They're like, yes. Um, And then continue to have a conversation. Okay, so why or what are the risks of, you know, going past that timeline or whatever number they gave and then moving through, okay, what are my options for avoiding or delaying that cesarean? What can I be doing to help insert, solve whatever issue we're having? And then, okay. And then if we do get to a cesarean birth, what does that look like? And can I, and then I would insert any values, any preferences that you had, um, whether it's written down on a birth plan or you just know about yourself, even into that different birth option, because you often can uphold a lot of things, even before a surgical birth. And so I was kind of move through that, pausing, feeling myself on feet on the ground, taking a deep breath, and then moving through my questions. Yeah, I would echo that. I think I think that's tricky, right? Because there's so much context behind why someone might recommend a C-section. And this goes back to trust, right? If you have a provider, mm-hmm. like this person is going to fight with me, to fight with me, not against me, <laughs> until the end of the earth so that I could have the best experience, a healthy and safe birthing experience. And then if that person then says, I'm so sorry, love, but I think we're at the point where mm-hmm. we really consider a C-section. When you have that trust, there really doesn't feel like there needs to be this this back and forth. And when that trust isn't there, then you have to go through these steps of advocating for yourself and trying to explain why you deserve more time and what can I do to get there. And so, and I and and the reality is, if we have so much time to like, let's do spinning babies and mouse circuit and da 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 da, then it's probably not emergent. So yeah, I think this is so layered. I do think it comes, it mm-hmm. all really just comes down to trust and advocacy. On one end, I would say, of course, advocate for yourself. Important again, just to reiterate or really summarize, have a birth team that you know can advocate well for you, even when you're unable to do so. Because usually as the birthing person, especially if you're going unmedicated or if you've been doing this for a while, you're tired, you're in the zone, mm-hmm. you're contracting or you're unstable. 
stable, whatever is the indication for the C-section. And so being able to speak up, this is the hardest time for you to actually be able to do it. And then you're the person who then has to sit back and like reflect on the decisions that were made on your behalf during a time where your mind didn't have the capacity to like navigate that. So it's really, really important to have people who are part of your team who you feel like can stand up and advocate, you know, appropriately for you. And then I would also just add a comment around the birth team. Commitment is to the birthing person, not their birth plan. Because I think that's a whole nother thing too, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is maybe shifting a little bit. Maybe it's not so much the C-section thing. I think I'm just answering this as a collective. You know, again, the commitments to the person, not the plan. The commitments to the person, not the plan. I think sometimes we get focused on helping them achieve their goals that are well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can lose sight of how the birthing person is feeling and what's happening to them at the moment. So for example, you have some loved ones who, you know, this person's centimeters, they're exhausted, they're tearful, they're pleading for an epidural and their loved one's like, no, Mm. you told me, you know, you do not want to ask for it, that my job is to keep you focused. And I think we have to be careful not to make assumptions, you know, about the laboring person and their ability to advocate for for themselves. So I think it's layered. We want the people who are advocating, advocate for me, the person who's in this experience. Um, And that's including the providers and the whole team. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I love that you started with the trust because literally in my example, it was from a place of like, I don't know this person. I don't know this provider. (laughs) And in my actual experience, that's never how those conversations go because there's so much trust there where clients know if I'm recommending something that really like we're pivoting our, we're not, this is not going to be a home birth. It's very rarely a big pushback and it's because we have trust. They know me and they know why we're now pivoting. They know that I have their best interests at heart. So I think that is a hundred percent the reason that these tools are often needed and ideally providers are doing their part to build rapport and to actually have trust because it does save lives like that back and forth. If it truly is an emergency is taking time away and it's not the pregnant person's fault is you didn't do your job to actually instill some trust and, you know, really understand and remove barriers to actually get this person, not from a place of coercion, but from a place of like, I need to actually do my job for you. You didn't do your part in establishing that, that care. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to like, there's many reasons why people are apprehensive about a C-section, right? Mm -hmm. And if if the provider did not uncover that, a lot earlier in the process, then it's just seen as you don't agree with my decision. But sometimes mm-hmm. it's, I had a loved one that died in a C-section mm-hmm. or someone else had a bladder injury, or I really don't want to repeat C-section because I want multiple kids. And if I have this, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many layers that I think, or it's just the way that they heal, or maybe historically, I've had one person who they they were so mortified of a C-section because in a previous surgery, they did not heal well and they had a dehiscence or in other words, an opening of that wound. Mm. And so to have that in their abdomen was so mortifying that they were mm-hmm. willing to be like, I just need more time. I can't experience that. But again, if we don't take the time to unpack that, then mm-hmm. we are really fighting about things that aren't relevant, right? Yes. Like we're not even addressing the underlying problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think it always comes back to trust and building trust. And I know that 
and that's not always the perfect scenario for everyone walking in the perfect world everyone would trust their provider and the relationships that they're building with the person that they choose as their birth team and everyone that's surrounding them is just building a circle of trust around that birthing person so that when there is a suggestion or a change in the birth preferences for what they wanted or maybe they're suffering and want to take another path than they originally planned, there is that ability to just like have that really strong trusting conversation between individuals and advocacy of like, I know this isn't what you wanted, but we have to take your preferences and convert them into plan B. And I think that this is an ongoing conversation that we as a birthing community have to have with birthing people early, early, early on so that they can make a, you know, walk a different trajectory and land in a different line. And I think it always comes back to, to the people that you're working with when you're in those prenatal visits, when you're in that birth space, is this preference or is this policy um, what are the things that are that we can um, that we can ask to get to the bottom of what's going on? It's like a, a mom who really wanted an unmedicated birth but was very anxious and ended up needing an epidural because they needed to have something that they could control and un- understanding those underlying fears and addressing those underlying fears and getting what's best for that birthing person without an agenda. And this is how birthing people, when you come into a space with a birthing person as a support team is not coming into that space with your own preferences and your agenda. It's really seeking first to understand and then to be understood. And when, when everyone in the birth team comes to that space with that, with that same philosophy of seeking first to understand and then to be understood, it changes the entire tone and it puts the power into the hands of the birthing person to make a decision that's right for them without judgment um, and then support them along that journey and really help them get to where they are without, without all of the trauma and baggage that they're going to have to work, work through for potentially years down the road. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Okay. Perfect. Well, I want to wrap up this conversation with and put a a really good bow on it. Um, (laughs) Is there any other pieces of advice or resources or things that you'd like to share? And also where can folks connect with you both online? Um, So yeah, I, on my quilted health, um, you can go to www.quiltedhealth.com. I sound like I am in a, some kind of marketing ad, um, <laughs> but there's some resources there. There's some blog posts that have, um, that are really covered great information. We're launching a clinic in Asheville the summer of this year. Fingers crossed that'll happen sooner than later. And we're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, all, all that jazz. So follow us and on our journey there. Besides that advice, um, I don't know. I feel like I poured uh, I poured as much as I could. Into <laughs> I would just kind of wrap it up into saying, you know, take the time that you need to invest in finding the right people. Make sure that, you know, you're never going to find the perfect. There's pr- probably usually not a perfect person, but there is a person for you and there's a person for your family and there's a person who is going to make you feel safe, heard and respected. And I think more than any other aspect of your care, this is one space that is, is so intimate and so really has to be guarded. You never forget your birth. You mm-hmm. never will forget oh, your birth. Cool. So it's one of those areas that are transformative. You come out of it a different person, whether it's it could be have an opportunity for someone to come out more empowered, um, 
you know, feeling respected, engaging in their healthcare, feeling like they are ready to tackle parenthood, or if you walk out of it disempowered, it really just, there's a ripple effect to that. You know, the way you start off your parenting journey starts off rocky and uncomfortable. And who do I talk to? Who do I navigate? You now just had a horrible experience. You don't trust your provider. You can't reach out to them for things that matter to you. And it's a ripple effect. So ultimately, advocate, 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 talk to your family, talk to your friends, talk to your community, make sure that the people who are in your team are aligned with you. And then, you know, find a provider that's aligned with you guys as a collective. That's all I got. Yeah, that's quite a lot. <laughs> uh, that was great. Um, I would say my only other piece of advice, thinking through um, alignment and then um, doulas are really amazing at really bridging the gap in a lot of the care and being highly focused on you. I personally grieve that role significantly. I'm a midwife. I can actually give some of the, you know, choices to people, but there is nothing like the, the trust and the care that, and that, and the relationship that a doula um, cultivates with their clients that providers we crave. We hope that someone looks at me the way a doula, a client looks at their doula. Your comment around um, seeking to um, see and then be seen. Um, I think the doula does a good space at humanizing both parties and like understanding that this provider is coming off a lot of stuff and a system that doesn't support them either. And this parent is coming with their preferences, this trauma, this past history, this thing. Um, And so I think doulas can be a great resource to make sure that in that setting, as much as they can control, but at least help facilitate the conversations that may need to happen and can see where there might be a disconnect sometimes. Um, A doula can hold that space uh, for parents and for providers too. Um, and really help. I used to tell clients, I'll be the ass kisser. I'll be the person who's like, oh, let me ask your nurse this question. I really don't need the answer to, but to make them feel included because they're part of the team and they want to. And sometimes we don't create space to welcome them into the birthday party. So like, I'll ask her where the washcloths are, even though I know they're in that cabinet. Like, so I'll do that work so that we, you know, build this team. Um, And having someone in your space who can do that for you can be really, really, really helpful. Um, Even if you can do it yourself, it's still why you should be pampered during this time. Let someone take care of you. So that would be my biggest thing is whenever possible, utilize a doula. They're invaluable. Um, And I hope in wherever you're located, they're a little bit more accessible with lots of things happening in the world to make that a possibility. But if anything, put it on your registry. Doulas are worth it. And then connect it with me. I am based in Los Angeles for services at jessicadiggs.com. I'm on Instagram at Jessica A. Diggs. Somebody stole my name. It's a whole thing. So you were that desirable, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been trying, but it's a whole thing. And then I just recently started a little like personal blog, professional blog called Midwifery is More, but really just keep it a space to share information because I love teaching. Um, but also to go on rants and stuff and just like talk about all aspects of midwifery. That's not just birth. So you can always 
find me at that as a Substack called Midwifery. It's more. I love that. I love it. I'll just add one thing yeah. to what you just said, Jessica, because that whole your what you said about the doulas resonate with me a lot. I'm a midwife. I hired a doula. I hired it for my husband um, because <laughs> I needed him to know how to support me without me having to say how I needed to be supported. So if I could hire a doula as a midwife, then that should say something. It's not about what I didn't know or what I had the ability to advocate for. It's I didn't want to have to advocate for myself. Yes. My team yes. to have to advocate for me. And so that you know, and then my husband not knowing the healthcare system had someone who did and would be able to support him and being able to advocate for what he knew I would want or need. So just wanted to add that, that, you know, that. shame in that. that. <laughs> Beautiful. It's, yeah. It has nothing to do with no, it's not knowledge. It's about feel and it's about being taken care of and asking for help. So I'm so proud of you that you had, had a doula. Yeah. Doulas are for everyone. Doulas are for dads, moms, grandparents, everyone. Um, So if you fit in that role, a doula is for you. If you are struggling to find a doula, if you're struggling to find a provider, the Anja community is a great place to start. Um, We would love to be a resource. And if you're struggling to find someone in your area, reach out to me inside of the community. Send me a DM because I have a lot of connections and I'm part of a lot of different groups. And we would love to help you find a provider that is going to respect and support you and help you get the care that you need. Quilted Health, we wish they were everywhere. Um, Maybe someday, hopefully someday. Um, But they also Mm -hmm. offer doula services with their their midwifery care. So that's something to be aware of. There's community programs where even if you're not affluent and you don't have all of the resources, doulas are accessible. There's community doulas. Mm Um, a lot of private doulas offer pro bono or sliding scale. So it's something to be aware of. Um, it may be more accessible than you think. And we would love to help you get connected mm-hmm. with resources. I want to thank you both yeah. so much for being a part of this conversation. This is so empowering. And I know it's going to be incredibly helpful to everyone who listens. And just thank you so much for taking the time out of the middle of your day to share with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. That's it from today's episode. We're so grateful you listened in and hope we're leaving you feeling empowered and confident. We're here to support you through your entire journey. So come find us on Instagram at anja.health, on our website, anjahealth.com, or in the Anja community at community.anjahealth.com. We'll see you next time.